Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are in awe of the truths that reading contained. That you alone know the infinite mind, the infinite heart of the Father. And we thank you that you were born in the flesh to help us understand those things, that we too might be made wise by knowing the Father through knowing you. Lord, I pray that we would just be in awe of your wisdom this morning and that as we sit under the teaching of your word, that you would use your word to grow our knowledge of you. In Christ's name, amen. This is our uh, last Sunday before Christmas, obviously, um, and at Christmas we're going to wrap up this short expose on a few of the roles which Jesus plays, and this morning we're going to talk about Christ the Sage, and I want you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 2, to a very familiar Christmas story. While you're turning there, I remember, this is Matthew chapter 2, I remember reading a book by Dallas Willard at one point where he said, Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. And I don't know why that struck me, why that, that was the first time I'd ever thought of that concept, but Jesus truly was the smartest man who ever lived. Not a single one of his judgments was ever in error. It's incredible. We're going to read Matthew 2, 1 through 12. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, I think this is an interesting scene to say the least. And Matthew's the only gospel to record this story of Jesus being visited by the wise men. And although the scene kind of starts and ends quickly, there's no other mention of it in the New Testament whatsoever, so it's sort of unique in that regard. It's actually, I think, a really significant moment in the Christmas story. These wise men, these sages that come from the east, they make this long journey to visit this child Christ and to celebrate his birth and to bow down and worship him and offer gifts before him. 
Why? Why do they do that? And why is it recorded of all the things that could be told? I mean, the story of Christ's birth and childhood is awfully short in Scripture. So why include this one? Well, I think to really answer that question and to really appreciate what's going on here, it's helpful for us to go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, actually. When the serpent approached Eve in this effort to lead her into disobedience, he managed to convince her that the fruit which God had forbidden was actually something good that God didn't want to share with Adam and Eve. And after listening to the serpent, we get this glimpse into the mind of Eve, what she's thinking as those seeds of deceit take root. And Genesis 3 verses 6 through 7 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, desired, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now the text tells us that their eyes were opened in order to communicate that they had shame in their understanding that they were naked, that they had sinned before God. And their eyes being opened is a metaphor, right? They weren't literally opened. It's a metaphor telling us that they became aware of this thing called shame. But the metaphor of their eyes being opened, I think, is actually a great irony here, isn't it? Think about this. In reality, when Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, suddenly their exclusive knowledge of goodness, goodness alone in the garden, was plunged into ruin with the additional knowledge of evil. Paul tells us in Romans that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to have found wisdom they became fools. In the Garden of Eden then, Adam and Eve lost wisdom. The eyes of their hearts became open to sin and to shame, but closed to the goodness of God. Eve thought that she would become wise by disobeying God, but Satan did what he so often does and turned the truth upside down. And instead of becoming wise, Adam and Eve were plunged into the ignorance of foolishness, the darkness of not knowing God that still lies over the human experience. Interestingly, the Hebrew word used for wise here in Genesis 3 to say that Eve saw that the fruit would be good for making her wise, it's the same word that we find in Psalm 53 too. That psalm says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Mankind by nature lacks wisdom because by nature we do not know God. Now I think maybe we've got some insight that helps us understand why the story of the wise men is in the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Maybe we can appreciate this a little bit more as we see Christ the sage 
born to us at Christmas. This child, born in Bethlehem, son of Mary, son of God. Remember back a couple weeks ago, I said that in the birth of Jesus Christ, we have creation and recreation meeting. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, now we see the wise men show up in Matthew's gospel to show us that in Jesus Christ, wisdom has been restored to the human experience. More than that, wisdom is now fully accessible to humanity again. Man can once again know God, what was lost in the garden. And in the Old Testament, we learn a lot about wisdom. We've got the book of, books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Psalms also talks a lot about wisdom. We have Solomon. You're probably familiar with that story. God says, I intend for you to be a good king. Ask me anything. And Solomon says, just make me wise. And Scripture tells us he's the wisest man who ever lives. But then in Jesus Christ, we have something altogether different, don't we? In Christ... Scripture tells us something greater than Solomon is here. We don't get a philosophical discourse on wisdom. We don't get generally true proverbial statements that help guide our lives. No, in Jesus Christ, we have wisdom in the flesh. Wisdom incarnate in the God-man Jesus. We get the wisdom from above, like James says, pure and peaceable, gentle, full of mercy and good fruit. We get that wisdom born among us in the person of Christ. Now think about it. If these wise men were already wise, they're called wise men after all, not attempting to be wise men. And if they're already wise, then why come to Jesus? We know from historical background these wise men would have been more or less nobility. They would have been court officials to a king, most likely. From the east, probably a place like Babylon. They had money and power, which is why they brought fancy gifts like gold and spices. It's also why Herod gave them any attention. To get a visitation with a king meant you had to be important. And they're called wise men. Which means as far as the world is concerned, these guys are already the sages and the thinkers that other people seek out in order to navigate life and grow in wisdom. They're called wise men because they're the best and the brightest of their times. But these wise men, these sages, come to find the child, Christ, to offer him gifts, and more importantly, to fall down and worship before him. Think about this. After spending a lifetime learning wisdom, the pinnacle of their pursuit to be wise comes in this moment when they look into the face of Christ and they worship God. The wise men came to Jesus in order that they might see wisdom and see God and be truly made wise. One other little tidbit that I discovered, which I think is kind of cool, is I was looking at this text, I thought about Solomon, right? And the wise men in this story, they bring gold and spices to offer to Jesus Christ. Well, if you go back to the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, maybe you know this story. She comes to Solomon to marvel at his wisdom in the way that he leads the people of Israel. And the text says that she offers him gold and spices, 
She does that to honor him, to appreciate his wisdom. And truly, in Jesus Christ, a wisdom greater than the wisdom of Solomon has come to us, hasn't it? And so with the picture of the wise men bowing at the feet of wisdom incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, I want to talk for a little bit about wisdom. What is wisdom? And why is Jesus the embodiment of wisdom? So I have three things we'll, we'll fly through. First, wisdom is knowing God. You heard the Advent reading. Jesus has full knowledge of God the Father, and wisdom is knowing God. Christ Jesus is the wisest man who ever lived because he knew the Father perfectly. And wisdom, first and foremost, is found in knowing God. The Old Testament puts it in slightly different language, but the concept is there. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a lot of effort, I think, if you pay attention to sort of downplay this word fear, as if the Bible doesn't really want us to fear God, to be afraid of God. And it's true, this is a complex word. It requires nuance. It requires some attention. Things like awe and reverence and respect are certainly included in this concept of the fear of God. But the fact of the matter is that Proverbs 9.10, the Hebrew word there, literally means fear. That is its primary definition. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in the book of Jonah when Jonah tries to run from God and he's on the boat and the sailors are seeing the storm threatening to sink their ship and they are afraid. That's the same word. The text says they feared the storm. Guys, to know God rightly is to fear God. To actually be in dread of His power, to fall on our faces because of His holiness, to rightly understand that He is Creator God and we are His little creatures with no power and no rights before Him. To fear God is to know that He is light and we are but a shadow. To know that he is just and we are transgressors. To know that he is life and we are but a mist. To know God is to fear God. This God who hung the burning fusion mass of the sun in the sky like a mother might hang an ornament on a Christmas tree with such ease. To fear God is to give him glory because this is wisdom. And this is why the wise men fell down and worshipped Jesus, because they were wise and because they saw in the face of Christ the face of God. And Jesus would later say in his ministry, if you've seen me, then you've seen God the Father. And if we know Christ, then we know God. And we also know by looking at the face of Jesus that even though we must fear God in order to be wise, we come to learn in the face of this baby boy, not merely to fear God, but to love God. Because that's why Christ came. Because God is love. And Scripture teaches us that this perfect love of God that He has for us, it actually drives out our fear. 
That's not to say that God changes or that God is any less terrifying or fearsome in his nature. It's only to say that all of the dreadful aspects of the perfect holiness of God in opposition to our darkened pride and sin, all of that has fallen on Jesus Christ, not on us. We look into the face of this child, Jesus Christ, and we come to see that while we have every reason to be terrified of this holy God, all of our fears have been folded into the cross of Christ and all that remains by God's grace is his unfailing love for us. Christ bore that terror so that we could carry the joy. And now we know God through Jesus Christ and we know that he is just and because we are not, therefore we must fear him. But we know, too, that he is love and that he spared us from that. He spared us in wisdom by making his own son come under the terror of his wrath. Our terror of a holy God was born on the cross by Christ so that we could be wise, so that we could know God, so that we could run to him and not run from him. So wisdom then is knowing God first and foremost, and knowing God happens primarily through the cross of Christ. But second, wisdom is knowing what pleases God. What makes this God delight? Once we've seen God in Christ, once we know God, we continue to grow in wisdom by continuing to grow in our understanding of what pleases God. And I have absolute certainty that for the wise men, when they bowed down to Jesus and then left and went home, they were forever changed. This was not like, you know, attending, I don't know, a football game. This was a deeply transforming moment. They had seen wisdom from above, and it must have made an indelible impression upon them. Their pursuit of wisdom, it didn't end by gazing into the face of Jesus Christ. No, that was the beginning. And if they thought that they were wise before coming to Jesus Christ, now after having looked at wisdom incarnate, they must have reflected back on those early years of pursuing wisdom thinking that was mere child's play. Because wisdom is knowing what pleases God. And here we find another reason why Matthew alone records the story of the wise men. Because Matthew, in just a couple chapters after chapter 2, is going to record the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to do it in its full, unedited format. Okay? We find it a little bit different in some of the other Gospels. But Matthew records the whole thing as one lengthy sermon. And the whole thesis of the Sermon on the Mount is how we come to know what pleases God. The Sermon on the Mount, it's in Matthew 5 through 8. It's just a retelling of the giving of the law of Moses, which we find in Exodus 19 and 20. Jesus becomes the sage on the summit. He ascends the mountain like Moses did so many generations prior. But unlike Moses, who ascends the mountain to receive the words of God, that he might then give them to the people of God. Jesus, in something radically new, ascends the mountain to speak, to give 
the words of God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches us the things that please God in order that we might be wise. The mouth of wisdom incarnate opens in human speech that those who long for wisdom might finally find it. And Jesus begins his sermon by talking about the blessedness of knowing what pleases God. He lays some things out, right? Blessed are the, those who are impoverished and humble in spirit, those who have a pure heart. God is pleased with those who are merciful, who are meek, and who are peacemakers. These are the things that please God. These are the things of wisdom. He goes on to teach that wisdom is found in forsaking anger. It's found in being reconciled to one another. It's found in integrity to our commitments. It's found in love for our enemies. It's found in generosity, a heart that treasures God, trust in His goodness. These are wise. These are the things that please God. These are the things that God delights in. And more importantly, think about this. These are the things that Jesus did. As wisdom in the flesh, he not only lectures about what it is, but he lives it. See, Moses, that old sage on the mountain, he received the words of God, but neither he nor the people that he gave them to, the Israelites, could do the words of God. They knew them, but couldn't do them. They were given them, but they couldn't keep them. But Jesus, that great sage on the summit, not only teaches us what pleases God, he actually then goes on to do everything that pleases God. And so in Christ Jesus, this child in the manger, we see a wonderful gift, don't we? The gift of wisdom to know what pleases God But in addition to that, also the gift of righteousness because Christ pleased God on our behalf in everything that he did. And this brings us to the final truth about wisdom. I want you to hear me clearly on this. It is not wise to know what pleases God and not do what pleases God. So it's not a complete definition, actually, to say that wisdom is knowing what pleases God. That's only half of the definition. Because God is actually greatly displeased when we know what pleases Him and we don't do what pleases Him. God was greatly displeased when Adam and Eve, knowing that God had said the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil was off limits, disobeyed him anyway. God was displeased when he said to Jonah, go this way, and Jonah quickly ran the other way. And so true wisdom means that we know what pleases God and we seek to do it. That's why Jesus in his sermon on the summit gives us this sagely advice to do wisdom. As he closes out this teaching, you probably know. He concludes by saying, I'm bringing two verses together, but he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. In order for us to claim to truly be wise, we must do more than just know what pleases God. We must do more than know that God is God. We must also do what pleases God as the evidence of our wisdom. Now, I want to encourage you because, thank God, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount the way that he does. Because in Matthew 5.17, he gives us some encouragement for our weary souls. Because if we're honest, we're not very good at doing what God has commanded. And so Jesus gives us this wonderful bit of hope in Matthew 5.17. He says that he came to fulfill the law. He came to do it perfectly. By telling us that he came to do the law, Jesus is reassuring our hearts in our efforts to be wise and to know what pleases God and to do what pleases God. Because the standard of perfection has already been met by him. Thank God for that. God accepts us because Jesus was wise and he did what pleased God. As the embodiment of wisdom, Jesus not only knew God and not only knew what pleased God, but Jesus was also able to put into perfect practice everything that pleased God. His knowledge of what pleased God and his actions of pleasing God were perfectly aligned in a way that you and I could never do. And because Christ did that for us, On our behalf, as our substitute, we don't need to fulfill the law in order for God to love us. We are accepted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But our acceptance by grace through faith doesn't change the fact that we need to be wise. So we must know God And we must know what pleases God, and we must seek to do what pleases God. And only a fool, a fool would know what the king of kings desires, what pleases him, and then go and make him angry by doing the opposite. So the first act of wisdom is that of the wise men, right? They humbly bow before Jesus, and they know that he is God, and they accept him as their king. And the second act of wisdom is to daily walk with Christ, hearing his words, what pleases God, and also doing them. So let me wrap this up as I conclude. God loves to give wisdom. God loves to give wisdom. That's why he sent Jesus, because he delights to give wisdom. God's heart was broken that Adam and Eve did not bring wisdom into the world by disobeying God. Instead, they brought death and evil and sin. And so Christ, wisdom in the flesh, he came so that we might see rightly again, so that we might be wise by knowing God, so that we might be wise by knowing what pleases God. And so that we might live in a manner worthy of this wisdom, doing all that pleases God. And if we lack wisdom, 
we pray and we ask God for more. And God, who loves to give good gifts to his children, promises that he will give wisdom. He will give more of Jesus. And more of Jesus dwelling in us, more of Jesus directing our hearts and our lives will produce in us more righteousness, more wisdom, more godliness, more holiness. So I entreat you, be like the wise men. Though you may think yourself already wise, humble yourself and bow before Jesus that he might make you more wise, that you might know God more, that you might know what pleases him more, and that you might cause him to delight in you as you wisely do all that he commands. We're going to take communion now, and we're going to do that by intinction, which means we're going to dip the cracker in the juice. There's two tables in the back of the room here. And uh, after I sort of explain, I'll pray for us, and then our worship team will come up to lead us in songs of praise to our God, the God of all wisdom. And while those songs are being sung, you are invited to make your way to one of the tables in the back of the room, and you'll find there crackers and juice. You can grab a cracker, dip it in the juice, and eat it right there. These are the elements that represent the body and blood of Christ. And this is a joyful act of celebration, where Christians remember the great sacrifice that God made for us to save us out of sin and death and foolishness. And if you're not a Christian, we're super glad that you're here I just encourage you to stay in your seat. This is for those of us who've chosen, like the wise men, to fall down at Jesus' feet and praise him as God. And of course, you can do that yourself. You don't have to literally even fall on your knees. Just in your heart, turn to God and say, I want to know you. And he will forgive you of your sins. Express your need to him and he will accept you. And if you choose to do that, then join us. Come have fellowship with us at one of these tables. And let me just add one thing that I think is important during this time. One of the reasons we do this format, this intinction from time to time, is because getting up out of your seat allows you to move around the room, which means you could potentially seek out a brother or sister in Christ in this room and you could ask their forgiveness if you've wronged them. And you could restore fellowship with them if fellowship is broken. Because you can't come to the table of Jesus out of fellowship with one of his children and expect to be in fellowship with him. We are united with one another through the blood of Christ. And it would be tragic for us to try and enjoy the fellowship of the table of Jesus if there is enmity between us and somebody else in this room. So before you approach the table, first, be reconciled to God. Receive his forgiveness for your sin and be reconciled to your brother or sister. And then go to the table and rejoice in the fellowship you have with God, purchased for you by the blood of his own son. Let me pray. God, we give you thanks for this feast that lies before us. And of course, it's just a cracker and some juice. But what it represents could not be more meaningful than in the body and blood of Jesus, 
We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have restored fellowship with God. We have our eyes opened to the truth of your goodness. Lord God, we thank you for your grace, for your unfailing love, for your constant faithfulness. We thank you that though every single one of us in this room is unworthy to approach this table, we are free to come because of your grace, your kindness, not because we've earned it, but because you're merciful. And Lord, I pray that you would make us wise, that we would know the one true God, that we would know what pleases you, and that we would delight to do that for Christ's sake, for his glory. Amen.